Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Hebrews 12, verses 11 through 17. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Chris. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, by affliction, he, meaning the Lord, teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. But today isn't that day. Today we still are walking through the afflictions of life, the challenges that we face. And before we jump into this text, it's helpful to understand, again, the backdrop of this text. The backdrop of this text is a writer who's writing to a people whose possessions had been taken, who had their, their property plundered, and more persecution was coming. They'll, they felt weak. They felt tired. And that's what the Christian life can feel like. And this text is going to help us to see some essentials for us to continue to run, but in the backdrop of understanding the context, we also need to remember that the passage that we're going through is really rooted in the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. So turn your gaze back to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to read those three verses. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So even as we go through these essential truths for us to continue, we need to have Jesus at the forefront of our minds. He needs to kind of lace through all the things that we're going to be talking about. 
And we are so convicted about having Jesus be the foundation of everything. We want to give you a gift before you leave today called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It's a book written by Dane Ortland. Uh, this has been a book that has come out recently, has ministered to me. You could read it devotionally. The chapters are short. It's not the kind of book that you want to just sit down and like, read all the way through because there's just deep truth that's pointing us back to Christ, and we want you to be encouraged to consider Christ. So they're going to be in the back on the cart. There's one for everyone in the church. There's not just one per family. Uh, the, a, a generous individual gave a bunch of money to Crossway Books to give to churches like 200 copies of the book. So I hope this is an encouragement to you to consider Jesus. So get one of those before you leave. So before we jump in, why don't we pray? Father, there are definitely calls here in this text for us to take action in the midst of feeling weary. But I pray, Lord, that, that we would consider Christ, that Jesus would be at the forefront of our minds as we think about taking action steps. So Lord, would you help us this morning to consider Christ, to consider what we need to do in the midst of trials and tribulations, Lord, to run the race and look towards the final end, which is to be in Christ's presence one day. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we're going to look at five essentials as we run to finish the race. The first essential is this, don't quit. Don't quit. Makes sense. Like, if you're going to finish the race, you shouldn't quit. Look back at the text, verse 12. It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I mean, this is the, the picture you think of someone who's running, drooping hands, flopping arms, knees that are starting to wobble. Those, those aren't good signs. Those are signs that Energy is waning. And one writer and marathon runner named Art Carey described this experience of hitting the wall as he ran the Boston Marathon. He describes his experience like this. So it's kind of mid-race. By now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. I don't know about you, but... I don't know that I get to 20 miles. I think I'd be experiencing these things a little sooner. But for him, he experiences this at mile 20 of 26 or so. My stride has shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half-dollar blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. Now the real battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb. One, two, one, two. Left, right, left, right. I keep watching my feet move one after another, hypnotized by the rhythm, the passage of the asphalt below me. My shoulders cramp. My my legs feel like lead, seething blisters, a dry throat, an empty stomach. I just want to stop, but I must finish. 
And then he says the last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes riveted catatonically to the ground. They trudge alone in bare feet, holding their hands with their shoes because their feet are so blistered. Others team up to help others, limping along, arm in arm, like maimed and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front. That's the picture that the author of Hebrews is painting for us. And he understands that's how the saints can, can feel emotionally. You've come to Christ. Maybe you came to Christ in a powerful way and you started running and you were running fast and everything was going well. And then as you get on in the Christian life, you feel this kind of experience. Though this is his physical experience, you feel it in life. It, it gets wearisome. And you, you want to stop. You want to quit. But he's saying, don't. Don't quit. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. And when he's saying that, you don't always grasp it maybe in the English, but in the original, there's not this picture of like, hey, just suck it up, buttercup, and get going. That's not the tone. The tone is actually to restore. When he says lift your hands or strengthen, it's really like restore. Get back to the basics. Return to your first love, which is Jesus. If you return to your first love, you're going to say, as James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You're going to endure, not because you figured out a way to tough it out. You endure because you're holding on to Christ, and you see what Christ has done in your life. You endure because you consider Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Christ. Go back to the basics. And then in verse 13, it says, make straight paths for your feet. That kind of harkens back to what we were talking about last week. Uh, clear the path. Free yourself of obstacles and desires that can trip you up. That's the picture, so let's not quit. But I know you're going to be tempted to quit. But the Lord wants us to know his grace is sufficient for us in this day and in any day to come when we're going to be tempted to quit. So let's consider him as we are tempted. So essential number one is don't quit. Essential number two, be vigilant to look out for others. Be vigilant to look out for others. Look again at verse 13. So after make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather to be healed. And then jump down to the first half, half of verse 15. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We all struggle. We all struggle, but there's a command here for us to look out for others. 
It's not just what we do about ourselves. How are we going to finish the race, but how are we going to help others to finish the race? The job is for everyone to look out for others. The job isn't just for the small group leader in the church or someone who's in a leadership role or a pastor. The job is for everyone to make straight paths for your feet. We're, we're doing this so that the lame may not be put out of joint. Those who are strong must help make straight paths for the weak. Think of the marathon runners that we just talked about. There are some that are in arm in arm just so that they can finish. In fact, I read an article in the, uh, the, the weekly newsletter I get from my daughter's school that a junior high girl was running a race this week and noticed a competitor, someone from a rival school, was hurt. The girl stops and helps this other girl cross the finish line from rival schools. The girl was on pace to have her best time. And she helped this other girl to finish. See to it. It's all of our responsibility. So, so this one, this girl took it on herself, someone who she didn't know and helps them. That's the heart that's being described here. See to it. See to it. It's a phrase that's plural in its command. It's everyone's responsibility. This is a corporate experience. We have to push back against American individualism. We have to push back against it. That air is, has, been, has been being breathed for longer than some of us have been alive. And we have to push back against it. It's easy for us to kind of disengage. It's easy for us to not come here. Now, I get there are reasons to be at home and watch the live stream. Some are dealing with serious illness. Some, uh, your kids get sick and you have to be home. There, there are various reasons to be home and watch the live stream. But we need to be present with the saints. Not just present with the saints so that we can have a, a, a number to say, yeah, this is many people here. No, we're present with the saints, certainly for our benefit, but we're also present with the saints for their benefit. When we talk about connecting as a church, connecting in small groups and on Sunday mornings, it's not just like a place for us to gather, it's a place for us to minister, to look out for others. The, the, the marathon runner said the real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing. But for us as Christians, it's not just about us finishing, it's we, we have a double joy because it's about finishing together, about helping others reach the finish line. In Hebrews 3.13, we learned, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One Greek commentator, who I can't pronounce his name, put it in terms of a band of travelers engaging in a journey. And he noted they must periodically make sure that everyone is still there. He said this, has anyone fallen out? He asked, has anyone been left behind while the others have pressed on? 
need, we need to be looking around. Is, is someone missing? Is, is someone struggling? We need to keep, get our eyes off of us and look around because the job is for all of us and we should have an eagerness. We should be vigilant in doing it. It's a see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God in verse 15. So how does one obtain the grace of God? What does that mean? Well, first off, and simply, is to share Christ, share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first way that we obtain the grace of God is we repent of our sins and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We entrust our lives to Christ. So certainly, it's going to be share the gospel with those who've never heard about Christ or share the gospel afresh with those who have followed Jesus so they can be reminded about Christ and what Jesus has done. So certainly the gospel is the first and foremost thing. And if you've not trusted in Christ, I don't want you to leave here this morning without talking with me or Wes or, or someone who you've talked to and you've come. That's the, that's the first way to obtain the grace of God. But we continue to experience the grace of God through his word or through fellowship with the saints, through the confession of sin. We experience so many means of grace, and we, we need to help others experience that grace. It's like it's this picture of maybe a pitcher filled with, with blessing, with the grace of God to be poured out upon us, just ready to be poured out, and we want to bring others to experience that blessing. It's, it's there to be poured out for us to experience it's not like God's just like sitting back. We've talked about this before. God's just sitting back and going, ah, oh, you know, I don't, I'm just going to let him struggle for a while. No, he's eager to bless. And sometimes there are those that are having a hard time and they can't, they can't look up to see. And we need to come and we need to bring them so that they can obtain the grace of God and they can experience the grace of God. And that happens in so many different ways. We need to be vigilant in doing that. Remind each other of Christ and what he has done. See to it. It's being attentive. Make every effort so that others would finish the race. So we talked about Sunday morning, it, small group. There's different ways in different places to do the one another's of Scripture. Small group is not like the only way that we do that. But in our local church, that's a way that we gather together where we can be more intimately known and know others and do the one another's of Scripture. But when we go to small group, small group isn't just for our benefit. I bet if you ask every single small group leader here, if they were honest with you, they wouldn't go, yes, I go to small group because it fulfills me like no other thing. I prepare for small group with such ease that I can't believe I have the privilege to come and to, to come to small group no, they're just like everyone else. When you're tired and your small group is on a particular night of the week and you're just like, oh, you know, I just, I don't know. The last time we had small group, I just didn't really connect with the discussion. It was, it was kind of boring maybe. And, you know, I was really tired and I was nodding off and I hope no one saw that. We, we all experience that struggle. But small group isn't just for you. Yes, it is for you. It's not less than that. Small group is an opportunity to help others obtain the grace of God. Hebrews 10, 
we learned, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm not trying to heap condemnation on someone who has to miss small group for different reasons. There are reasons for that and seasons for that. But the general pattern of our lives is to be in fellowship, to stir up one another. And there may be seasons where you go to a small group or a context where you're with others where you're just pouring out where you're just pouring out because we want to help others obtain the grace of God. So ask yourself, who specifically in your life are you actively helping obtain the grace of God? Are you making disciples? Are you going with ministry in view as you enter the context of Sunday morning or small groups or other contexts in which you go? Again, I'm not advocating for someone to just always pour out and not ever be filled up or ministered to. But we live in a culture that says, me, 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 do what is good for you. And we have to fight against that continually. And the way we first fight against that to be vigilant to to, to care for others is we look to Jesus. We look what he gave up. We look how he sacrificed and let that guide us, let that direct us, let that encourage us as we help others obtain the grace of God. Essential number three, pursue peace. Look at verse 14. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with, without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace. Now, the Bible is filled with exhortations for peace. We could kind of be like, oh, that's just one thing in the midst of a lot of stuff, but it's kind of a big theme. I mean, Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Romans 14.19, make every effort to do what leads to peace. Romans 12.18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Matthew 5.9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. It's a theme. Jesus went to the cross to make peace so that we could have peace with God, so that God's hostility against us, his wrath would not come upon us. Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. So, When the author says, strive for peace with everyone, we want to be leaning forward. What are we doing to pursue peace with everyone? Not just believers, but with everyone that we engage with. Certainly strive for peace with those in the household of faith, and we'll talk about that, but we want to strive for peace with those outside the church, those who don't know Christ. Because it's pretty obvious, like, no one is striving for peace right now. I mean, even people of the same camp are fighting with each other. So what is going to stick out? What is going to open a door for the gospel? Well, simply doing what Jesus did, making peace. Great illustration. Watchman Nee tells a story. He was a Chinese evangelist that really illustrates our calling to peace. 
He said, there was a Christian who had a rice field on a hill and had to, uh, to hand work a pump to bring water up from the irrigation system that ran uh, at the base of the hill. And beneath him was a neighbor who made a hole in the dividing wall between his property and their property so that every time the Christian came to pump the water to irrigate his field, it would go through his field, through the hole, and then irrigate his neighbor's field. So he's doing double work. So the Christian became understandably frustrated. Now, maybe some of you are like, yeah, I wouldn't struggle with that at all. That's never happened in my neighborhood or with my property or with my stuff. Or maybe you are resonating with that. So this is what, this is what happened. So he's understandably frustrated, and he consulted Christian friends and said, what should I do? And they said, patch the hole. No, they didn't say that. They said, I have tried to be patient. He, he said he tried to be patient and not retaliate. And, and he wants to know if it is right to confront. And they said, they prayed. And then one of them noted that as Christians, they surely had a duty to seek more than justice for themselves, but to live in such a way as to be a blessing to others. Armed with this advice, the Christian uh, started with a different strategy. The next day he went out and first pumped water into his neighbor's field and then went on to do the additional labor of watering his own fields. Before long, this procedure brought the neighbor out to ask, why in the world would you do this? He's wondering, wait a minute, I'm expecting you to have discovered what I have done and to get very red in your face and say things that shouldn't be repeated. That's probably what's going on in his mind. And he goes and he's like, why, why are you doing this? And then as a result of that relationship that ensued, the neighbor became a Christian himself. Friends, that's the heart attitude here. That's the attitude of one who's looking to Jesus. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Do you have the heart to put peace with your neighbors above maybe even your own comforts, maybe even your own rights. See, as I'm reading the New Testament and studying, I don't see these exhortations for us to, to relentlessly put a wall between us and others because we demand what is our right? I'm not saying there's not a place for us to make a gracious and loving appeal. But there's certainly not a place for us to be so, 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 so defending of us that the person who doesn't know Christ is left by the wayside. 
there is definitely a call for us to put ourselves aside and be on the front lines to stand up for Christ. We each have to work this out, but we need to ask the question, am I pursuing peace? Am I combative with others or am I looking to pursue peace? Have I inadvertently distanced myself from others who don't share my perspective? We can do that. We can have friends in the household of faith and hang out with them and and easily distance ourselves from those who don't know Christ because their lives look differently than us. And so it, it means we have to make the effort. We have to strive for peace. We have to strive to spend time with them, to relate with them, maybe even having awkward conversations about things. But are we gonna strive for peace? with those outside the church. And certainly we need to strive for peace with those inside the church, leaning into relationships. Lean into relationships that are difficult for you. I mean, certainly there are going to be some relationships that are easy, right? You've got that individual who you just click with. Sometimes you have the same personalities. Sometimes you have different personalities The Bible doesn't say, make every Christian your bestie, okay? It doesn't say that. But it does say strive for peace. Do you find yourself gravitating away from some and to others and potentially inadvertently kind of not hanging out with them or not engaging in conversation with them? Are you pursuing You don't have to be in conflict with them. But here's here's a shocker. If it weren't for Jesus, uh, we wouldn't be here. If it weren't for Jesus, at least half of you would not like me. At least half of you would not like me. And if you got to know me, the other half wouldn't like me. And just just look around. I know that's kind of awkward, particularly for those of you who are introverts, but just, just briefly look around. Just, just quick, and if you're an introvert, just go, just look quick and then look at the floor. It's okay. You wouldn't be with these people if it weren't for Christ. But these are those for whom Christ died. They were enemies with God, just like you are an enemy with God, and you, and you now have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. So that dividing wall of hostility you don't have to deal with because Jesus has paid for that. So as you pursue them, you're on the same side, you're on the same team, and you're going to finish the race together. Some of us might hit the tape at different points in time. I get that because of when God calls us home, but we're running the race together. Are you going to sacrifice your best time to walk with the one that maybe you don't relate to as easy? Are we going to pursue peace? Because if we don't pursue peace, friends, it has drastic consequences. That's why the author says to beware of bitterness. That's essential number four, to beware of bitterness. Look at verse 15. So see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many become defiled. Bitterness is a sign of spiritual trouble. Whenever I've 
I come across bitterness. I'm aware of different times in my life where that has popped up, but there's one particular time. I remember engaging with someone in college who, whenever I engaged with this individual and the subject of their sibling came up, didn't come up often, whatever the subject of their sibling came up. So this person was probably in their 40s at the time, just seething, hateful, that their face would get contorted whenever the, the sibling's name came up or referencing them. I'd never seen anything like that before. Well, I can't say that that's not true, right? but yet, man, how does that happen? It does not happen overnight, friends. That individual was bitter because of a number of things that had happened in the past, and they let decades of bitterness just take hold of them. We don't consciously decide to become bitter, but when we allow things to fester, it takes root in our heart. Unresolved conflict becomes a cancer in the church because it says, look, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. I've seen it. I've seen it in churches where something, sometimes even small happens, and then just kind of starts to fester, and it starts to cloud how they think about that other individual. And every time they think about an individual, they think about this stuff, and they can't even talk straight because it's just like, oh! They don't get there overnight. And then sadly, it can then turn into gossip. They bring others in, and they aren't talking in reference to Christ. They're not starting with, consider Jesus, consider Jesus. No, they're just talking about this horizontal relationship, and they can bring others in, and it can divide a small group. It can divide a church. And so the writer's saying, stop, stop way, way in advance. Don't even go there. I don't mean to be funny, but... I think the great theologian Barney Fife had it right when he said, nip it in the bud. Okay? There's some amazing truth to that, right? Nip it in the bud. Stop it before it even starts. Because in Ephesians 4, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Nothing is going to give power to the enemy like us being at one another. Satan doesn't actually have to do some massive work. He just has to get us bitter towards one another, not leaning into one another. We need to look to Jesus because Christ forgave us. Christ endured for us and let us endure for one another. Strive for peace. Make make some of these phrases part of your vernacular, part of your vocabulary, part of things that you say. Will you forgive me for? And you can say that statement uh, without expecting them also. 
No, I'm not going to do that until they come and ask for my forgiveness. Oh, is that what Jesus says? I mean, we're not doing a whole study on forgiveness, but I can assure you, uh, you can do just a kind of a cursory study on forgiveness. Um, on the last day, you're going to be asked how you forgave, not if they asked for your forgiveness. But they didn't. You're not going to be able to stay that before the throne. So just be comfortable with that and trust God to work. Much of the time when one is willing to come and say, will you forgive me? It breaks the wall down and people stop throwing things over the wall at each other. Or just simply coming, is there something between us? Is there something between us? I notice there's a tension between us. No, what are, we, what, are we, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to be like, well, you did this and this, and I saw you do this thing, and I saw you posting on Facebook a picture with so-and-so and this thing over here, or sometimes we don't even say that. We just kind of stew about it because we see their world over here rather than just go, wait a minute. Why don't I just ask? Oh, when they walked by me at church and didn't look at me, they really had to go to the bathroom and they were just beelining it for the restroom and I got all honked off because they gave me this look and maybe they think differently. Maybe they thought my outfit didn't look right and oh, how judgmental are they? You laugh, but you know some of you have done that. Just ask the question, is there something between us? You may find out there's nothing. You may find out, yeah, there is. Some of you aren't asking the question because you're like, I don't want to know because I don't want to deal with it. The author's saying, don't. Don't let anything take root. Deal with it now, because it is small right now. Help me understand what you mean by. Someone says something to you, and you're, you're tempted to think they judge you. Ask them, help me understand. And get others' help if you need it. Get others' help. Ask Ask someone in your small group. Ask your small group leader. Ask one of the pastors, one of the elders. Like, get help. We have help. I'm not going to make you look around again, but there's help. We have help. And don't do it by a text or email or social media. Okay, don't. Go to their house in person. Actual, in their actual face, like the one that you can touch like this. See their face. I get maybe something needs to be dealt with. Give them a call on the phone. You can call on the phone. At least hear their voice. Friends, there, there is a reality. We don't always achieve peace with everyone. But we are always called to pursue peace with everyone. I know there's hard situations where you do everything that you know to do, and for whatever reason, it just doesn't resolve, and it might not until you see Jesus face to face. But let those be the exception rather than the rule. Let's beware of bitterness. And when the temptation comes to be like, I don't know if I want to deal with that. I don't know if I want to deal with that. Because those of you who are, who are like easy to share something, you're like, I don't know if I want to do that because I might say something I shouldn't. 
Or then there's those of you who are introverts, like, I don't want to deal with that because it's just easier for me to hide here in my corner, and it'll, it'll go away if I let it go. It never goes away. But let's consider Christ. Consider Christ who went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. We have to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's how we're going to take the step to pursue peace. That's how we're going to take the step to not let bitterness take root in our lives. We've covered a lot. We're not even going to get to the last point. Friends, throughout all of this, I mean, there are commands that we have see in this text. Don't quit. Look out for others. Pursue peace. Don't let bitterness take root. But all of those fall under the umbrella of consider Christ. Consider Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The only way we do these things is if we consider him, because we realize when we're found in him that there is grace to do that. We'll, We'll find ourselves in weakness to do all these things, but when we are weak, he is strong. So friends, let's do these things, but let's do these things knowing that we are in Christ and looking to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus who went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And as we have looked to him today, Lord, may we find strength in him. And right now, Lord, as we have just a few moments of quiet before we sing and before we Get to the announcements. Lord, search us and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. Pray that prayer, friends, not out loud, but before the Lord. Who who is God nudging you to pursue? Is God maybe simply nudging you to not give up? You came here this morning and you wanted to give up. And he's saying, don't give up. Look to Jesus. But others of you, he's he's stirring something in you. As we've looked at his word, he wants you to go to someone. It may be someone in this room. It may be someone at home. It may be someone you have to call on the phone because they live so far away. And he wants you to do that because you have peace with him and he wants you to have peace with them. And it may be hard, but you can take that step of obedience and trust that he's going to meet you. So even as we sing, if you need to continue to pray, pray that God would help you. But don't let the day finish without experiencing the blessing that comes from taking a step of faith and obedience to God's word because he will meet you and he will get the glory. So God, I pray for the grace that we need. I pray for the perspective that we need to look to Jesus. 
We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.